Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to be talking about Season 5, Episode 21, Two Minutes to Midnight, written by Sarah Gamble and directed by Phil Segretia. Oh, death. Wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. A lot happens before we meet death. Cass comes back just in time to defeat Pestilence. And then their troubles rapidly escalate. Bobby's traded his soul to Crowley for death's location. Sam is climbing aboard the Say Yes to Lucifer train and trying to convince everyone else to get on board the Hell Express. And Sam still has to destroy the massive Croatoan virus warehouse with newly ambulatory Bobby and newly human Cass, while Dean enjoys a nice helping of Chicago pizza with death himself. There might not be any getting out of their deal either. The deal that Bobby made with Crowley and the deal that Dean makes with Death. But far more so than any other horseman, Death is really his own thing. And I'll get to that as we go through the episode, because it's a lot. Once again, there's just a lot of plot to plow through and not a lot of time for the characters to stop and reflect. And there's a little bit of that. We'll talk about all that stuff, too. I would like to take a moment to put a mild disclaimer here. How I talk about death is based on my understanding of death throughout the entire series that does grow, evolve, and become refined as we go through the iterations of death and learn more about death's place in the cosmos. Not just who we see in this episode and the things that come out of his mouth in this episode. Death is a cosmic constant. Where there's life, there's death. The natural order. And while he's embodied as a character with a distinct personality and arguably an agenda, he's still always that cosmic constant to me. And weirdly, I find it comforting to view him that way. Because there's some stuff in this episode that Death has said that Phantom kind of latched onto and assimilated as some sort of unchangeable fact of the story, for better or worse, and in my brain, mostly worse, as hard canon that can never be defied. Specifically, the line about Death eventually reaping God at the end of all things, and just metaphor people. Also, Death might know a lot. He might have a much broader lens on creation than anyone aside from God himself. But, who boy, he's still a creation, or a side effect of creation, which I'll probably explain as we go through things. Maybe not. Anyway, that's something that's always subject to Chuck's whims. Does Death believe here? That he will reap God at the end of all things? That he will outlast God himself? Or will the act of reaping God snuff out death as well because there's nothing left to reap? There's nothing left in existence? Is that just something that death himself believes he's personally going to handle? I don't actually think so. I think it's one of those chicken-egg things that without God, without the power of creation... There is no need for the power of destruction. It's the balance that we'll further explore through Chuck and Amara's ongoing relationship issues 
later seasons. So to me, I try and stay on that more metaphorical plane rather than taking death at his word as if he can't lie or can't be metaphorical because it doesn't help anything and it just ends up prompting a lot of, well, death said this and that's going to happen now because as if it's like engraved in stone and not a fictional narrative. (laughs) So we're going to be flexible about stuff like that. Anyway, since there's not a lot more to the setup that I think this one needs, I don't have a whole lot of bonus material on this one. I mean, there's not even any interviews or any other fun aside stuff. So, hey, we're just going to enjoy it for what it is. And with all that out of the way, let's get to the then segment. We open with dramatic music playing as Sam and Dean drive away from the events after 518 point of no return, with Sam wondering if Adam is going to be okay, and then a little flashback to that scene where Adam was trapped in the green room with Michael. Dean replies, I doubt it, Cass either. And then we get a shot of Cass activating the angel banishing sigil carved into his own chest and disappearing. And they haven't heard from him again since then. We then immediately cut to Gabriel telling them about how to open the cage and shove Lucifer back in with the horseman's rings. And Dean reminding us that they already have two wars and famines. They've only got two more to go. We're then reminded that Pestilence is on the playing field, and Crowley telling Dean and Sam that he can get them Pestilence last week. We're given a brief rundown of Croatoan, demonic germ warfare, and that it's what the demons have in store for the world now. It flashed to last week of them testing it on two scientists in the Nivius Pharmaceuticals lab, And then we flash back to Lucifer in 510 Abandon All Hope, saying, well, hello, death. The reminder that death is on the board as well. They don't remind us of Bobby's first encounter with death trying to deliver him a message in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid when death brought his wife back from the dead, along with a town full of zombies. I just think it's important to point out that Bobby already has a connection to death. And then Crowley offers Bobby the ultimate deal, a loan of his soul for death's location. And while we're on terrible plans, but last-ditch efforts at the end of all things here, Sam telling Bobby that what if he was to say yes to Lucifer and then drag Lucifer into the cage? Because that's the one part of their little plan with the rings that nobody has really worked out. And it's a terrible plan. Bobby even tells him that. But what other options do they really legitimately have? Hmm. And on that note, we cut to now in Davenport, Iowa, at some sort of medical facility. A woman lying in her hospital bed greets her doctor, who's apparently been away for a while. And unfortunately for her, we know it's pestilence. She's like, I'm just feeling worse and worse. And he's like, yeah, because you're suffering from the common cold, dengue fever, and a rare form of Japanese encephalitis. And she's very confused by this. Like, I don't, what are you talking about? I don't have any of those things. And he waves a hand over her and she rapidly gets sicker and sicker. 
Apparently, the woman even develops chicken pox while we watch. He just is like waiting for her to die, even does a countdown. And then she barfs what looks like pistachio pudding all over him. And (laughs) he's just like, hmm, interesting. And then we cut to the title card. And I don't find it interesting. I didn't want to eat pistachio pudding for weeks after the first time I saw this episode. (laughs) It's just like, why, why, why that color green? Come on, folks. After the title card, we cut to one day earlier, where at Bobby's house, they're looking at all these newspapers with omens, deadly tornadoes across Kansas, Chile devastated by something, weather phenomenon and bulletins from all over the place. It's looking very close to the end of times here. But meanwhile, in Bobby's kitchen, Sam and Dean are arguing over Sam's harebrained plan to say yes to the devil. And Dean is just like, you know, you've had some stupid ideas in your time, but this takes the cake. Dean asks Bobby if he knew about this, and Bobby just kind of like nods because, yeah, Sam had run it by him. Dean's like, great, thanks for the heads up. You can't do this, Sam. And Sam's like, yeah, that seems to be the consensus. And Dean's like, great, end of discussion. And just then, his phone rings, so at least he doesn't have to continue the discussion. In what might be their first good news in a long while, it's Cass. Dean's like, Cass, we we all thought you were dead. Where are you? Cass is in a hospital, and he is not doing well. Cass just woke up there. The doctors thought he was brain dead, and then he just came back to consciousness probably as his consciousness was reunited with his body. Because this, to me, is concrete proof that Jimmy is not in there, or Jimmy would have been in there with some brain activity when Cass ejected himself from the vessel, from that body, when he banished the angels. If Jimmy had actually been in there, Jimmy would have been conscious in the hospital. Or at least there would have been brain activity showing that there was somebody in the body, you know? So to me, this was always concrete proof. Jimmy's gone. Jimmy's been gone since the first time Cass blew up. (laughs) And nobody will ever talk me out of that. That this is now Cass's body. It's not Jimmy's body that Cass was crammed into. It was built specifically for him when he was resurrected that first time. I think Cass is tied to that body in ways that other angels are not tied to their vessels. And yes, he will continue referring to it as his vessel, but I don't think it is anymore. I think it's his body. And I think it's an essential and integral part of him that you can't separate from his grace. I don't know what would happen if he tried to like leave that body in the way that angels do. I don't think he can, and he never does again. So to me, this is proof of that, that Cass is now that body, that he's got whatever it is that makes a human being a human being, in addition to being an angel. One hasn't taken control. But this is really, for me, where the proof is that he is on this journey toward humanity. And I don't think his character ever wavers from that except when he feels bound by duty to heaven. When he feels that he can't let go of that duty, whether it's 
duty to heaven or duty to Sam and Dean to protect them, duty to Jack to be able to protect him because he feels he can't stop being that cosmic being. He can't just let it go because nobody ever told him that he was loved for who he was instead of just, you know, what he can do for them. So anyway, that's for me to be mad about in about 10 seasons. But anyway, (laughs) it's an ongoing conversation with his character throughout the series. So I needed to point that out here. We're seeing Cass react with winces of pain as he tries to sit up as Dean tells him, well, you're just in time. After Cass has told him the story about how he appeared on a shrimping boat and frightened some sailors. He's got wounds that aren't healing that are being held together with butterfly bandages. And he looks really uncomfortable. Dean can't see this, though. Dean doesn't know what kind of state Cass is in. He just assumes Cass is the same Cass he's always been. He can't say that those human needs aren't his own anymore. There's no more hiding the fact that he might just want the cheeseburger and not just because Jimmy's body would have wanted the cheeseburger. He can't pass that off anymore. He is that body now. Dean tells him to zap over there. They've got a location on Pestilence and they're going after him right now. And Cass just lays back like, I can't zap anywhere. Dean figures out that Cass is effectively human and he apologizes to Cass for it. Sorry you're stuck in this boat with us, but Cass, you know, aside from it being inconvenient because he wants to be there to help, he's come to terms with his limitations here. He can't zap, he needs food, he needs transportation, he needs pain medicine, and he needs money to get all that stuff. Dean tells him Bobby's gonna wire him some cash. Bobby's grumpy about this, but he obviously does it because... Cast gets a bus ticket. <laughs> but before he hangs up, Cast tells Dean that you said no to Michael. He says he owes Dean an apology, that he's not the burnt and broken shell of a man that he believed him to be. And the little face journey that Dean goes on as he processes this, Cass is being entirely earnest to him that this is a really big deal, this apology is important for him to let Dean know. And Dean, meanwhile, is just like, thank you. He understands that this means something to Cass, but it's also kind of insulting at the same time. Like, you didn't have that high an opinion of me last time I saw you, so yeah. But it's a step in the right direction, and it's about the nicest thing that Cass says to Dean for a while, so hey, he'll take it. Sam and Dean take off for the Serenity Valley Convalescent Center, where we saw Pestilence earlier kill that poor woman (laughs) with pistachio pudding, apparently. Sam describes the place as more depressing than evil. Dean says it's a four-color brochure for dying young, like he never wants to end up in a place like that. And it's kind of wild because in season 11, The next retirement home that we know that they visit, where Sam meets Eileen, Sam saves a brochure from that place. It's nothing like what he expected. It's pleasant and fun, and it feels like a place to live out your years rather than to 
endure the march toward death that this place sort of feels like. But, I mean, pestilence and the demons might have something to do with that aura of evil or depression over this place. But even the Banshee and Into the Mystic doesn't give that same depressing vibe to the place, you know? So it's not just the monsters, it's the place itself. It also points out how far their views had changed by season 11. That they weren't on the, yeah, we're going to live fast and die young train, you know, go down swinging, life of a hunter thing. That they actually had hopes and dreams for the future. Or at least curiosity about what a future could look like for them. But back here, they didn't really have that. And towards the end, they seemed to lose it again in the final episode of the series, even though they had it up until then. So, you know, hmm. We can grumble about that more later. The problem they're facing right now is that they've got this huge building full of people. They don't know who's human, who's demons, and who's pestilence. It makes their job near impossible. They can't just go around killing everybody because there's innocent people in there. They can't just go on a hunt for pestilence. Dean makes a plan. He notices a security camera on the side of the building and finds a way to get themselves picked up by security. They enter the hospital, claim that they're looking for their aunt, and talk their way into the security room, where they knock out the guard and just take over the surveillance system. That gives them a safe little cubby from which to observe the entire hospital. Dean looks incredibly bored, and it's clear that they're there for a while because there's a little montage of him nodding off and then getting up and pacing the room and moving around to different locations. It's like, how long did that guy stay knocked out from Dean punching him in the face? Like, did they drug him or something? They had to have drugged him because it's clear that they're there for at least half an hour, probably longer. Sam at one point asks, so what are we looking for? What does pestilence even look like? Dean's like, you probably look sick. Sam's like, everybody looks sick. And then Sam finally spots it. The TV screen glitches out so you can't see this person's face or hands. And that's probably uh, a clue that there's something supernatural there. And it's not just the one camera or the one monitor that's glitching. As the person walks from area to area, different hallways, different monitors, different cameras, the effect continues. It's this person who's causing the disruption, not the equipment. And then he walks into the woman's room from the cold open. Poor woman who dies of everything. <laughs> While he's busy killing her, as we saw in the cold open, Sam and Dean make their way sneakily as possible towards the room where he went in. They walk past another room where a nurse notices them sneaking past, and she immediately moves to his room and tells him, after blinking her eyes to Demon Black, Sir, the Winchesters are here. We should go. And he's busy wiping pistachio pudding off of his glasses. Pestilence, however, is very angry with Sam and Dean for what they've done to his brothers. He insists that he's going to take it out of their healthy young asses. That is, he's going to give them a random assortment of diseases and 
The nurse reminds him that they are under strict orders not to harm the vessels, and he yells back at her. Well, if Satan wants them, he can glue them back together. He's like, no, I'm getting my revenge on these two. Pestilence then gives the demon nurse an apologetic sort of look and opens his arms for her to come to him to embrace him. She does, and he twists his ring, and a doctor and a nurse out in the hall succumb to the pile of diseases that leave them barfing up pistachio pudding, which Sam and Dean then come across as they walk towards the room. And they are hit with the magical wave of everything disease and start coughing and don't succumb quite so fast as everybody else seems to, but still are taken down several notches from healthy. I honestly don't even know if N95 masks or higher respirators would have helped them in this circumstance because, I mean, when the disease is spread by a wave of magical power, I don't think masks protect against that. But we see from their point of view, their vision's all going blurry. They're staggering, struggling to stay upright. Dean collapses to the ground in the hallway right outside the door. Sam manages to get to the door when the nurse opens it. Pestilence welcomes them both, waves them in, and Sam collapses on the floor in the doorway. Things are not looking good for our heroes. The nurse drags them both into the room, and they haven't died yet, because I think Pestilence is kind of controlling the disease within them, keeping them too ill to fight, but not letting them die. He seems to have given them a different blend of diseases, scarlet fever, meningitis, syphilis, and in a wild bit of foreshadowing, he lifts Sam's head up by the hair and tells him, no matter how bad you're feeling right now, it's going to get so very, very much worse. And it's like, well, you don't know what Sam's got planned. You know, saying yes to Lucifer, dragging him into the cage and spending a an eternity being tormented by him. So, yeah, so I think that's not really that much of a threat as you think it is, sir. But Pestilence is enjoying this. He even squirts some hand sanitizer on his hands as he gives them his perky little monologue that he'd worked out for them about how beautiful disease is and how it gets such a bad rap. While he's monologuing, Dean struggles to reach out for the dropped demon knife. And of course, Pestilence notices that and just viciously steps on Dean's hand, which he also seems to enjoy, just inflicting that little bit more pain and frustration. With his other foot, he kicks the knife away. Pestilence seems particularly angry with God himself, because God chose to pour all of his love into these horrible, disgusting, messy humans. And side-eyeing that, how much does God actually love them? He's just fascinated by them like anything else. Anyway, Pestilence has chosen to prove to God that he's wrong about his feelings towards humans, one epidemic at a time. He's just going to keep doing his best to prove how gross and disgusting and worthless humans are and how much better disease is. And he's just using Sam and Dean as an experiment, asking them on a scale of 1 to 10 how much pain they're in. But before he can get an answer, 
The door opens and Cass comes staggering in. Pestilence is like, how'd you get here? And Cass is like, I took a bus. Don't worry. I, I. And then he starts coughing and falls to his knees and coughs up blood. He's clearly not angelic anymore. But Cass had sort of strategically fallen to his knees right at the spot where Pestilence had knocked the knife away to. And as Pestilence laughs at Cass and is like, there's not a speck of angel in you, is there? Cass grabs up the knife, lurches to his feet, chops off Pestilence's fingers with the ring included. And it's like, maybe just a speck? I don't know if that was Angel that powered him to do that or just who he is. But after Cass chops off his ring, the nurse goes ballistic and attacks Cass, knocks him back to the ground, falls on top of him and on top of the demon knife that kills her. Meanwhile, Pestilence is like, it's too late anyways, and then disappears. So it's too late for what? Oh, right. Crotone virus that they were all planning on releasing. That's still in the production pipeline. Just kind of waiting for it to get out to the world. But as soon as Pestilence was severed from his ring, Sam, Dean, and Cass, they're all healthy again. Like nothing ever hit them. Magic. Later on, they get back to Bobby's with Pestilence's ring. And Bobby seems pretty pleased about this. He's like, hey, it's nice to score a home run. Dean is resting his chin on his arm. He's like looking downtrodden. Sam is looking nervous and disappointed. And Cass is looking like pensive. Bobby's like, what's what's wrong? And Sam tells him that Pestilence said it was too late. What did that mean? Too late for what? How do we stop it? Dean tells Bobby they need some good news. So Bobby tells him that Chicago is going to be wiped off the map and storm of the century Three million people are going to die. And Dean just puts his head back down like, okay, yeah, I guess we don't have any good news. And Cass just asks, I don't understand your definition of good news. And yeah, that's unclear at this point, isn't it? (laughs) Agreed. Bobby clarifies, though, it means those are all omens. Death is going to be there. That is where we're going to catch up with death Well, at least that's a plan, even if it's kind of a long shot sounding plan. Sam asks him how Bobby put all that together. And Bobby waffles for a moment. He's like, well, I I had a little help. And that's when Crowley appears in the kitchen, pouring himself some whiskey. And they put all the pieces together. You did a deal with him, didn't you? Did you risk your soul? And... Sam asks the real important question, did you kiss him? Bobby tries to deny it, but Crowley has photographic evidence. He took a picture of their kiss. And as far as I know, Mark Shepard still has that photo on his phone all these years later. (laughs) Or he did last time I heard of him telling this story at a con like three or four years ago. So yeah, he's, he's probably still got it. Dean, however, is solely focused on Crowley giving Bobby's soul back right now because Dean knows how soul deals go. You don't let that just sort of vaguely hang out there in the future. He does not want what happened to him to happen to Bobby. Crowley tells Dean that he won't give his soul back. He's considering it an insurance policy 
because you all kill demons. I'm trying to work with you here. And Gigantor over there keeps trying to kill me. He won't do it if Bobby's soul is hanging in the balance. So Sam is getting his anger issues under control (laughs) by force here. And I mean, honestly, that is the smart business here. And none of them can fault Crowley for that stance. But they've got a location for death, so they're going to go after it as unprepared as they feel about that. Dean's out at the car, checking through his weapons stash. When Sam comes up and Dean's like, I think we're going to have a talk. And they have a talk about Sam's plan. Sam starts out with, I know you think that I'm too weak to take on Lucifer. And for the record, I agree with you. I know how screwed up I am. Bobby, Cass, you, you know, I'm the least of any of you. And Dean rolls his eyes like, oh my God, Sam, no. Dean doesn't think he's the best of any any of them either. They're all broken at this point in some way. Sam adds, but I'm all we've got. If there was another way, show me. But I don't think there is another way. I'm the vessel. It's got to be me. And it ends on a very, it's not like we have any other choices note. And again, my least favorite phrase in this whole show. And Crowley interrupts with, and scene turning this into a drama moment instead of letting them finish their conversation. Crowley, though, is there to show them the news headline, Nivius Pharmaceuticals is shipping their swine flu vaccine that's being rushed out to stem the tide of the outbreak. Sam and Dean read this and just kind of like, what? So? Crowley's like, you two should be glad you've got your looks. Like, you've got nothing going on in the upstairs department. <laughs> it's Croatoan. Crowley has advised them to stock up on everything, as we mentally have flashbacks to 5-4, the end, and what life was like there. He's like, by next Thursday, we'll be living in Zombieland. And that's when the music cue kicks in, and we cut to Death's introductory scene. Pulling up to a curb in Chicago as a storm rolls in, in his old white Cadillac, gets out, bumps into a man on the street, brushes his shoulder off like, oh, something has touched me, and the man drops dead to the ground behind him as he walks past, and oh, death plays. It's my second favorite character introduction in the entire series. Later that night, back at Bobby's, Sam and Cass are headed out to Nivius Pharmaceuticals to try and stop the Croatoan virus distribution, while Dean is headed out with Crowley to find death. As Bobby packs up, Cass is standing there holding a little shotgun and lamenting the fact that he is essentially useless. No more angel powers at all. He's human. He's like, all I have is this. What am I even supposed to do with it? And Bobby's like, point it and shoot. You know, you got more than I do. I can't even stand up to help in this fight. At least you're ambulatory. Cass is not getting it. And this is why the idea of endgame Angel Cass is so repugnant to me. Because he grows so much from this point where 
his only disappointment is that the loss of his powers, he doesn't think he can be useful. His mind, his body, his ability to fight, because he didn't lose the ability to like punch people, <laughs> you know, he's still got his ability to strategize. He's got his knowledge, his intelligence, who he is as a person is not unchanged. And yet he laments the loss of his powers because he can't just hold up his hand and fry a demon. He's vulnerable the way all humans are. And to him, that's a disability almost and makes him less useful. He's unable to fulfill what he feels is his duty to stand as that protector. And it's like, Cass, that should never have been your duty. Like, you don't have to take that load onto yourself. You can be just as useful because of who you are, not what you are. Just like Dean convinced Bobby earlier, you know, just because he was in the wheelchair didn't make him useless, didn't make him less valuable, didn't make him less loved or less family, even though Bobby felt that it made him less Cass is learning this lesson from Bobby, who is also getting to teach it to somebody else. But when they're all ready to go, Sam and Dean stand there wishing each other luck in their respective Sam ending the zombie apocalypse, Dean killing death. Sam laughs and says, remember when we used to just hunt Wendigos? Sorry if anyone is offended that I used the word, but I'm literally quoting what he's saying. Like, remember how simple things used to be? And Dean's like, uh, yeah, not really. <laughs> I don't remember life ever being simple, even when it looked simple on the surface. There was so much Dean just buried from Sam and took on himself. So yeah, really, Dean doesn't remember a time when anything was simple. Sam offers Dean the demon knife and is like, hey, you might need this. Crowley tells Sam to keep it. Crowley has him covered and hands Dean a rusty old sickle. Crowley tells him that it's death's own weapon. Kills demons, angels, and rumor has it, death himself. Cass squints at him and is like, how'd you get that? And Crowley's just like, hey, king of the crossroads. I can get anything. As they're getting ready to leave, Crowley turns to Bobby and is like, what, are you just going to sit there? And Bobby's like, no, I'm going to river dance. Crowley's like, well, if you wanted to impress the ladies, Sam and Dean side-eye Crowley and then look over at Bobby and Crowley tells him, Bobby, you really wasted that crossroads deal. You get more if you phrase it properly. So I added in an extra little clause just for you. And for the first time all season, Bobby, in total shock, stands up from his wheelchair but at least the three of them get to have that one little moment of something good happening for once. Bobby feels like, wow, I can actually help. I don't have to just sit here and worry that y'all are out there risking your lives and there's nothing I can do except sit and wait for you to call and tell me how it went. He can actually go on this run. Not only that, Bobby gets to drive the van. He's probably thrilled at the feeling of freedom of being able to just drive. And Cass is getting the lowdown on Sam's plan about saying yes to Lucifer. Sam is expecting Cass to also tell him it's a terrible plan that he shouldn't even try. 
Except Cass is like, well, I'm happy to tell you that if that's what you want to hear, but that's not what I think. Cass is like, well, you and Dean have a habit of exceeding my expectations, so Dean didn't succumb to Michael. Maybe you have a chance of overcoming Lucifer. And I mean, it's not like they have any other options to try, so might as well, but Cass approaches it from a strategic perspective. There are things you need to know. Michael has another vessel and confirms that, yes, it is Adam. They were hoping that Adam refused to say yes or somehow escaped that fate, but now they know for sure he did not. Cass gives the worst case scenario that if you say yes and then fail to drag Lucifer into the cage the apocalypse will be complete and the fight will happen and the collateral damage will be immense. There's also the demon blood. You can't say yes to Lucifer unless you're so full of demon blood that he won't burn through you and that his current vessel, Nick, is drinking gallons of the stuff Bobby tacks on and how is that not the worst plan you've ever heard? And Sam looks deeply uncomfortable He never wanted to have to touch demon blood again. And it's funny that Lucifer is the only angel that requires gallons and gallons of demon blood to stay in a vessel. It's like, well, when he was possessing Cass in season 12, it's like he never uh, drank demon blood that we saw. But it's so weird that Lucifer is always tied to this weird level of vampirism of some sort with the demon blood back then and then in later seasons in season 13 where he's having to consume the grace of other angels the way Cass did when he had his grace cut out and vampirized another angel except Lucifer was theoretically going to just continue doing that until he drank down every other angel in heaven and then what was he gonna do you know it wasn't recharging his grace it wasn't filling him up It's almost like he was forced into feeling like he needed to do that. And it's just so disturbing. It's just like consume, consume, consume. I just find that fascinating because no other angel has ever required anything like that. Yet it's a theme that just surrounds Lucifer for his entire arc on the show. Our little destruction team arrives at Nivius's warehouse They scope the place out and see that, yes, all those Croatoan shots are getting loaded into trucks for simultaneous rollout to the entire country. According to Bobby's schedule, the first truck won't leave for an hour. So that gives them time to go in, plant the C4, and then get as far away as they can before it blows. While Bobby's going over this detailed plan, Cass points out that a truck is leaving, which means they are officially out of time. Bobby uses his favorite word, balls. Okay, new plan. The new plan is that Cass goes in, knocks the driver out as he's opening the gate, smashes the gate controller so that the gate stops opening. And honestly, for a guy who is used to having angelic powers and yet does not now, he's doing a damn fine job. Good for him. But a nearby security guard sees what's happening and locks down the warehouse. He's got demon black eyes, and he knows the Winchesters have arrived. The big warehouse doors drop closed just as Sam and Bobby arrive. 
They run around to a side door. Sam has to shoot the lock off the door. Bunch of employees come running out, and Sam and Bobby go in. They're just in time to witness a bunch of the warehouse workers that have been turned with the Croatoan virus tearing another worker apart. Lovely. And of course now, all those Croatoan people are coming after them. Sam and Bobby pick them all off quite easily, and then they hear a woman screaming from across the warehouse. Sam gives Bobby the demon knife, tells him to wait there, and goes off in search of the woman who's screaming. While he's waiting there, the demon security guard tries to sneak up on Bobby, but Bobby just stabs him with the demon knife, and he goes down. We then cut to Chicago, where Dean and Crowley are scoping out Death's location. They come upon this warehouse that Crowley insists is Death's stable, and the block is swarming with reapers, and we get a shot from behind Crowley's back of what he sees, and yeah, there's like a dozen reapers just standing staring at that building. Crowley zaps back a moment later and tells him, boy, is my face red, Death's not in there. And Dean's like, you were the one who insisted he was. And it's almost like Crowley is just trying to get Dean worked up. Get him in that frame of mind he wants Dean in, just like he did when he tricked Dean into going up and talking to Brady with false information. Crowley's like, oh, we'll just catch death in the next doomed city. And Dean is not having that. He's like, millions. You said millions of people were going to die if we don't stop death here and now. I'm not letting all of these people die. Back at the Nivius warehouse, Sam manages to save two people from the Croatoan people. And he and Bobby continue to examine the warehouse to make sure there's no more people in there because, you know, they've still got to plant their C4, blow this place sky high. Back in Chicago, Dean gets in his car and Crowley's already there. And Dean's like, what do I do? Call in a bomb threat? A thousand bomb threats? How am I supposed to get three million people out of Chicago in the next ten minutes? And he turns to look at Crowley, like, express his frustration at Crowley having given him bad information. Because this did cost Bobby his soul. And Crowley's just gone. Dean's like, great. Now he's abandoned me on top of everything. In his frustration, Dean looks around and sees Crowley over by the window of a pizza joint across the street. Crowley's standing by the door of the place, mouthing at Dean, I found him. And he's pointing at the doors. And Dean's like, what? I can't hear you. Crowley zaps back into the car and is like, I said, I found him. And the thing is, before they even went to that warehouse before, Crowley was like, oh yeah, something about getting pizza. And Dean was like, uh... Yeah, we got other things we need to do. And it's like, here he is. Death is at the pizza restaurant. It's like Crowley knew that all along and was just riling Dean up. Because now Crowley tells Dean he's right in there. Dean gets out of the car. He's kind of terrified. He's faced three horsemen already. None of those have turned out well for him. (laughs) You know, I mean, they won in the end, but man, it wasn't easy. And now Death himself... Dean's already died a couple times. He knows what that's like. He doesn't particularly enjoy it. And Death has the power he knows. He's already had a few encounters with Death this season in a roundabout sort of sideways fashion. He knows what Death's power level is. And he's got to face him alone. 
When he looks back in the car to ask if Crowley's coming with him, Crowley's gone again. Back at the Nivius warehouse, they kill a few more demons, save a couple more people, and then Sam gets blindsided by a Croatoan-infected person. Bobby tries to shoot the guy off of Sam, but his gun is out of ammo or jammed or something. And then Cass comes in from the other side with his little shotgun and blasts the Croatoan off of Sam. Cass looks at his little gun and he's like, actually, these things can be useful. Sam's just lying on the ground, like trying to catch his breath after having been choked. And Bobby's like, can we just commit our act of domestic terrorism and get out of here? Meanwhile, back in Chicago, Dean enters the pizza place. And much like facing down famine and finding a diner full of dead people, he's walking into this restaurant and finding just a bunch of people dead. At least they're not dead from eating themselves to death or other horrific ways that famine killed them. They just look like they peacefully dropped dead on the spot. But they are all still dead. Dean is not happy about that. He doesn't like thinking of all these innocent people who died just for this. Death is sitting with his back to Dean. Dean's got Death's scythe in his hand and is trying to sneak up quietly on Death to kill him. Death is just casually eating some pizza. And of course, Death knows exactly where Dean is and what he's got in his hand and what he's doing and what his intentions are. And the handle of the scythe heats up so much that Dean drops it. When Dean looks back up again, the scythe is just sitting on the table beside Death. And without turning around, Death says, Thanks for returning that. And Dean realizes he's in way over his head. He's now completely disarmed. And as the storm intensifies outside, Death invites Dean to join him for pizza because it's delicious. Very last meal feeling to Dean. Dean hesitates. He walks very slowly over to the table. Death orders him to sit. Just doesn't even look up at Dean. Just continues eating his pizza. It's clear to the viewer that, and to Dean, that this is not like the other three horsemen they have met. War, famine, and pestilence had their own little agendas, but they were just doing mindlessly what their thing is. War was creating war. Famine was creating hunger. Pestilence was creating disease. That's all they did. Death, however, encompasses all of those things. It's like he's greater than the other three. Because his purpose is the opposite of life. He has a far larger cosmic agenda. Death tells Dean that it took him long enough to find him, that death has been wanting to talk to Dean. And that whole death is a larger thing in the cosmic order of things becomes intensely obvious when Dean asks, like, uh, so is this the part where you kill me? And death looks at him and is like, you have an inflated sense of your own importance. And makes it feel like it's not just Dean specifically with an inflated sense of his self-importance, but like people in general. It's almost beneath death's notice most of the time, you know? Where war was intensely interested in manipulating people on a very people level. Famine was intensely interested in what motivated people's hungers. 
pestilence was very interested in how disease could be used to destroy people. Death explains how insignificant he finds Dean on a cosmic scale in this tiny speck of a planet that's barely been around at all, and he's just so old that things like Dean are, to him, the cosmos is young, comparatively. You know, our solar system is comparatively young, and humanity is barely even a flash to him, let alone Dean Winchester specifically. And considering Chuck's narrative that has put Sam and Dean at the center of the universe... I think that itself probably irks death, that he has been subjected to becoming part of this story. Death didn't ask for that either. Chuck has manipulated this entire story into being, made him, forced him, bound to Lucifer for the purposes of this apocalypse. He doesn't want this nonsense. To him, this is an annoyance. And on that note, Death serves Dean up a nice slice of Chicago pizza and orders him to eat. Dean is like, okay, uh, is it going to kill me? Uh, I guess I have to eat. I've kind of lost my appetite, but here we are. I better not disappoint the guy that has the power to kill me by, you know, sneezing too hard. Dean very slowly takes a bite and Death is like, good, isn't it? Like, he's trying to bond with Dean, despite all this he's saying about being such a vast cosmic entity who, you know, you're so insignificant to me, and yet, I can find this small pleasure here. Is it really insignificant to him? Or is this just how he's explaining himself to Dean, and his own frustrations at being wrapped up in Chuck's little plot here, in this whole apocalypse nonsense? Dean wants to deny it, he doesn't want to engage with this, but... His little eyebrow goes twitch, like, yeah, the pizza's pretty damn good. And Death just goes on about eating his own slice. And Dean's like, "Uh, I gotta ask, how old are you? Death casually tosses out, oh, as old as God, maybe older. Neither of us can really remember anymore. Life, death, chicken, egg. But regardless, at the end, I'll reap him too. And Dean's eyes go wide, like, Oh shit, you're going to reap God? And Death looks up at him and is like, Oh yes, God will die too, Dean. Like, everything in the universe must come to an end because everything in the universe had a beginning. And he is just the symbol of the endings of the universe. Lightning flashes outside and Dean looks horrified by this. Dean laughs nervously and says, This is way above my pay grade and... Death agrees. Yeah, just a bit. So Dean asks him, why haven't you just killed me since I sat down here? What do you want? And Death is like, the leash around my neck, off. And we find out why Death is so disgruntled. Lucifer has bound him to his will. He's been constrained for this stupid apocalypse plot that he doesn't really want to be part of. Lucifer has death where he wants him, when he wants him. This is why I couldn't come to you. I had to wait for you to come to me, because Lucifer would not let me approach you. Lucifer has made him his weapon, 
hurricanes, floods, raising the dead, little nod to dead men don't wear plaid again. Death doesn't want any part of that. He's offended that he's enslaved to, quote, a bratty child having a tantrum. Dean is like, and you think I can unbind you from Lucifer? And the haughtiness comes back. There you go, being all ridiculous again. Of course you can't, but you can help me take the bullets out of Lucifer's gun. You want this, right? And he holds up his hand with his ring on it. Dean glances briefly down at that scythe on the table and thinks, can I grab it before he kills me and whack his finger off? And thinks better of that plan and just says, yeah. And Death replies, I'm inclined to give it to you. Just hand the ring over. Dean's kind of shocked by this. He's like, oh, then what about Chicago? And Death's just like, I suppose it can stay. I like the pizza. And he takes his ring off and holds it out for Dean. He tells him there are conditions. Dean's like, okay. He's thinking this is way easier than I was expecting it to be. Holy shit. The conditions, though, are bad. You have to do whatever it takes to get Lucifer into the cage once it's opened. Dean's like, yeah, that's the plan. And Death's like, no, no, no. Your brother, he is the only one who can stop Lucifer. You have to let him go. Death extracts the promise from Dean that he will let Sam jump right into the pit. And that's the condition. Do I have your word? Dean seriously thinks about that. Like, is there any way I can get out of this? Is there any way that I can stop Sam from doing this? Is there any other way we can cram Lucifer into that cage? Because it's almost like Dean is locking this destiny up for themselves right now. It's almost like Chuck wrote this whole plot line with the rings as a way to get out of killing them off permanently because he's decided, no, wait, these guys are just way too interesting and they're finding all these loopholes and if they can unlock this loophole, they'll be worth watching for another year or two. I probably can squeeze another story out of these guys as their writer's room is planning on getting renewed for season six and handing the reins over to Sarah Gamble, author of this episode. Hmm. Ever since season 15, I like to go back, I mean, even since before then, I like to go back and imagine, yes, Chuck is writing this, not just the prophet recording it as it happens, but actually crafting this story. Because to him, Yeah, the apocalypse was one level of an ending that he always wanted, but he's still getting what he wants here. One brother sacrificed to save the world, the other one left to mourn. That's Chuck's story. That's what he wants. That's what he gets at the end of his stories. Except Sam and Dean kept going every time. Chuck didn't want the apocalypse to happen necessarily as long as one brother was sacrificed and the other brother had to carry on without him and build a life for himself alone. Because that's what Chuck did. He locked Amaro away so he could build this life of his own, you know? 
build all of creation for himself. That's the validation that Chuck's seeking. And that's what death is setting up here. Does death really think this will override the apocalypse? I don't think so. I mean, I don't know if death is actually being sneaky about sharing this information any more than Gabriel was being sneaky sharing the information about the horseman's rings in the first place, or if that's information they were only given as Chuck was writing that stuff into the story to bring this about. Like, okay, well, we're not going to get Dean saying yes to Michael and Sam saying yes to Lucifer and having the battle on that level we've got plan B's and C's and D's, and this is where it's led them. Same result. One brother dead or locked away in hell forever. The other left to mourn and carry on as best he can, because that's the narrative Chuck wants. He wants everyone to validate what he did, that he was able to throw his sister away to have the rest of creation, And that's what Dean is being forced to choose here, to throw his brother away for the rest of creation's sake. And it's kind of sick, isn't it? And that's why I always hated this end. If Supernatural had ended here, I never would have watched it, that's for sure. It never would have been some great narrative. It would have been sad and tragic, but it would never have been the grand narrative of Supernatural that we all have grown to know and love. Because it's Chuck's story, wrapped up neat and tidily as Eric Kripke exits the show. I mean, he's still involved in the show. He writes the season six finale for fuck's sake. So it's not like he's gone. He's still involved. But this is his, what we think of as Kripke's grand narrative coming to an end. And it's depressing as hell. Anyway, moving on. Back to this episode. I can complain about Swan Song next week because there's going to be so much complaining. I know it like tops so many people's lists of greatest episode ever, but oh my God, it's not even on my list of top 100 episodes of the series. <laughs> I, I really hate that episode so much. I'm so not looking forward to next week. Ugh. Anyway, back to this episode because I love death. Dean finally comes to a decision. And he's like, uh, okay, uh, y- uh, yes, I guess. And that's like, that better be a yes, because you know, Dean, you can't cheat death. This is the agreement you're coming to. And I'm going, he drops his ring into Dean's hand and it's like, the deal is sealed. He's locked into it now. And the weather immediately begins to clear outside. It stops raining. The lightning and thunder stops. And death's like, okay, would you like the instruction manual? Here's how to use the rings as the key. Back at Bobby's, Dean's out in the garage with the four horsemen's rings and he sets Death's ring down and activates the key. All the rings are magnetically drawn together. Bobby walks out and brings him a beer and seems so happy to have his legs back. He's like, I walked up and downstairs all night last night. (laughs) I'm sore now feels so good, it's like he's scared it's a dream. Dean takes the beer, but puts it aside and shows Bobby the trick with the rings, pulls them all apart and lets them all zap back together again. Bobby's like, so Death told you how to operate those things? And Dean's like, yeah, but I got bigger problems. 
what do you think death does to people who lie to his face? Bobby's like, oh shit, what'd you tell him? Dean explains the whole thing about Sam. And I need to point out that the beer they're drinking is Black Label Schultz beer. The beer of death and debt. They are now in a little contract with death to take care of this in a specific way. To let Sam jump into the pit in hell with Lucifer for an eternity. They're indebted to death for the chance at it, though. So incredibly on point beer selection capabilities from Bobby. I always just like to point out Bobby's beer selections. Dean, however, is struggling with what death made him agree to. Dean's like, how can I even trust that that's the right thing to do? Even if death said so, that that's what's needed to stop Lucifer. Because he understands that death is bound to Lucifer. And Lucifer wants nothing more than for Sam to say yes to him. And here it, Sam's gift wrapping himself for Lucifer, basically. Apparently in a plan to stop Lucifer and lock him up. How does death know that this is going to work and it's not just a manipulation of Lucifer? Bobby's like, well, he's death. Like, he's a powerful being in his own right. But Dean still has doubts. And honestly, good for him. I'm glad that Dean is this doubting machine because it serves him so well throughout the rest of the series until he finally cracks and breaks and falls victim to what the universe wants of him. Bobby's willing to give death the benefit of the doubt on this assessment here. He's like, I think it's not entirely, even while Dean is like, take it all with a grain of salt. Like, we're still looking for wiggle room around having to do this. And Bobby seems to have changed his mind, or at least lightened his tune towards Sam doing this. Seems like, okay, so what changed? Bobby explains that back at Nivius, he watched Sam save civilian after civilian, putting himself in danger to rescue other people before they blew the building. We've been hard on him, but he's been running into burning buildings and saving people his whole life. So we got to give him a little credit for that. Dean agrees, but he also doesn't want to send his brother to hell for an eternity. Dean's familiar with hell. He did not enjoy it. Well, until he started enjoying it, but that was only because he was slowly becoming a demon and giving in to the horror of it because at least it wasn't him getting cut apart anymore. Bobby puts it quite plainly to Dean. What exactly are you afraid of? Losing or losing your brother? Because if they win, Sam's gone forever to hell. And I don't think Bobby really has processed that part of it through. And even if he has, he doesn't have that firsthand knowledge that Dean does of what he's condemning Sam to. And that is where the episode ends with us contemplating whether death said all of that because he truly believes it can free them all and end the apocalypse and lock Lucifer back up, or if he said it all because it puts Sam exactly where Lucifer wants him and death has been forced to enact Lucifer's drama and plans since he was bound to Lucifer at the beginning of the apocalypse. How much of what death said 
and is doing is just part of Lucifer's grand plan. Gabriel may have said that not even Lucifer knew about the horseman's rings being a key. Well, he certainly knows by next week when they confront him. Oh yeah, I knew all about that. So really, whose narrative are they following now? Death's? Gabriel's? Chuck's? Lucifer's? Michael's? Their own? Are they really tearing up the pages? Are they really going off book? Or are they doing exactly what Chuck wanted them to do? I think Chuck's enjoying this version of the story. I think he finds them interesting enough to want to keep watching. And that's why the loopholes. And that's why Sam gets out of hell. And that's why we get a season six and a reboot of the apocalypse. Because there's more story to tell. And I'll talk more about that next week in season five, episode 22, Swan Song. I will make sure everybody knows exactly why I dislike that episode so much. And I think I've got that point across. It's not the grand triumph of free will over destiny. It's not them valiantly sacrificing themselves to save the world from evil. It's Chuck's chance to stand on stage and pat himself on the back, which he literally does during the episode. So, you know, anyway, I'm not going to keep talking about it this week because, ugh. but it feels like all of this is just feeding right into that. And I hope I haven't forgotten to say anything I wanted to say about death or the cosmic order, or Chuck's grand narrative or free will versus destiny or I don't know, whatever. But it really does feel like all of this is riding on Dean and his choices. What will he choose to do? It's not like he really has any more choices. They've been presented with this one final do or die. You either do this thing or the world dies. So that's what's left to do. Anyway, until then, you can find me on Tumblr. I'm Mittens Morgul or SPN George. You can find me on Discord, where I'm Mittens, hashtag 4865, or you can email me at mittensmorgle at gmail.com, and I look forward to talking to everybody again real soon, even if it happens to be about Swan Song. Huh, funny. I talked a lot longer than I was expecting to. Death always gets me chatty. I love him so much. Because he's kind of like the opposite force of the universe as Chuck, the creator. He's not really the destroyer. He's just the natural ending of things. And that's why it kind of pissed me off that Billy got killed the way she did right at the end, that she'd been manipulated into a very similar position as Death here, almost like she'd been bound to Chuck's will and to carrying out his plan so that he'd have that little back door into the story right at the correct moment that he needed there to be. He needed to clear the table, get Cass out of the way, get Billy out of the way, keep Jack occupied because he was preparing Jack to become his new vessel. And that's exactly how season 15 feels to me, the entirety of it. Anyway, so yeah, when Billy was wiped off the table, but when first it was Amara, It was when Chuck absorbed Amara into himself. It's like, oh, shit, that is so not good. That's like his opposite number being taken out of play. 
becoming part of his power. And that's never a good thing. No. Anyway, the fact that Amara never got her freedom back after that, even when Jack supposedly took over and took her, took her power, he never let her back out to be free again. It's kind of telling, you know, that he never brought Cass back because, of course, Chuck didn't give a shit about Cass. Jack would have. Messing with the natural order, it's like he learned all of Chuck's lessons, that Chuck was like, my mistake was writing myself in and as a character and letting that play out because, man, everybody could see exactly what I was and I couldn't sneak around and do what I wanted to with the plot and manipulate things behind the scenes because everybody knew I was there. It's like, mm, sort of like Jack is kind of stuck with it now, too, pretending to be Jack. Anyway, whatever. I'll shut up now. I've been talking long enough. Anyway, have a good one, everyone. And Virgil is trying to knock over everything on my side table. Thanks, Virgil. And apparently we're getting some sort of uh, weather alert. Uh, Let me make that stop.